Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from TheEthicalPanda.com. And I'm Andy Nelson from The Next Real Film Podcast. And today we're talking about Minute 39, which begins with Volstagg wondering how the guard knew and ends with Hogan putting the pieces together. Joining us on the show once again this week is Jessica Plummer. Uh, Jessica, happy Thor's Day. And Thursday, we always like to ask our guests, what is your personal favorite Thor moment? It can be from the movies or the comics or some Saturday morning cartoon, whatever it is. Yeah, I, I was not prepared for this. Um, we really should warn people we're going to ask this because we always stump <laughs> them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love this whole movie. I really, truly um, adore this whole movie. Um, but I also, he has so many great one-liners in Avengers. <laughs> like, um, the, you people are all so petty and tiny. is such a great line. I mean, it's, it's a dark joke, but when he says about Loki, he's adopted. <laughs> like, it's a great, I mean, it's, it's all very Whedon-esque, but he has some really yeah. <laughs> excellent lines where he gets to be the witty character and not just sort of the butt of the jokes. So I like those. Yeah, I, I, I think I really fell in love with the Thor character during the Avengers movies, and it's helped me, seeing him like in that environment helped me enjoy him a lot more in these. And we'll have all that and more in just a few moments. Are you a fan of Thor and you want to wear some Marvel Movie Minute-inspired outfits? Or maybe you're looking for a mug with our mugs on it. Find out what you're looking for at our online store. Just head to truestory.fm slash Marvel Movie Minute and click on Merch. All right, let's jump right into this minute. So, and it starts with, you know, now Loki, we've broken through. He's joined the conversation and, and he comes in with a bang. Volstagg asks, how did the guard know? And Loki just says, I told him. Uh, and, and we get a bunch of different reactions. What's kind of your take on this scene? Well, this is where we needed one of those double takes, right? <laughs> considering considering how the Guardians uh, or the, the Warriors 3 were written, it would have entirely been fitting if one of them actually did do a double take uh likely fandral but i mean yeah i mean it's it's one of those things where it's like what you told him like i i don't know it, it it it's a big surprise i found the reveal really interesting again it goes to that deleted scene where hogan already knew but says nothing in this moment but obviously it's it's you know that we can't take that as as part of the canon because it was a deleted scene um but still i i think that it's a really interesting reaction where there is some straight up surprise as to like like the fact that he told him but what i find so strong about the way the scene plays is loki makes total sense i was gonna say quickly about hogan even we do get sort of the closest thing to a double take from him in that we see his massage stops you know <laughs> right. it's just that great moment of like okay i'm on now i'm in this conversation the way i might not have been before yeah i think it's it's a really interesting moment it, it's also to me it sort of plays up the i don't know the strange dynamics of how these characters exist because there's simultaneously a feeling of oh my god i can't believe you told dad that we were sneaking out and there may be a traitor to like an opposite side in this 
eons old war that wants to kill us. And those things exist at the same time because they live in this very heightened, unreal state where they, like, they can be killed, but they are immortal. So it's hard to know sometimes how serious the consequences are. Like, And I think that, that I mean, obviously, that's what Thor runs afoul of. And like he gets banished for something he didn't think was a big deal. But there is an element of like, this was a game and suddenly it's not. And Loki was the first one to step out of the game and treat this as a matter of politics. I think that's a really good point. And to me, it's kind of frustrating in some ways that, th- that this is when they start to figure out that he's sus- he might be suspicious or they start to become suspicious. Because, Andy, I agree with you. I think everything that Loki says is dead accurate. You know, we've just seen Thor act like someone who would be an awful king. And was also kind of awful to his friends, even. And I, it's frustrating, but I also think it's great that, that all these different layers upon layers are here, because I think, you know, on the one hand, you kind of want... It, it feels like Loki's kind of going for almost an intervention moment, you know? It's the, like, hey, guys, can we talk about the fact that, like, it's not just that he, like, has some drinks and it's fun, he's got a real problem. But the fact that the friends immediately get suspicious of him, on the one hand, they're right... But I also get a sense of like they are so it is so hard for them to consider what Loki is saying that actually maybe this friend who they followed pretty much all their adult lives, it seems like that, or even since they were teens, is actually not fit to be the king, is not fit to be their leader. And so they just immediately go to instead like, hey, someone talked about a traitor. Is that Loki? Yeah, it's such a strange thing because I mean, yeah, he's he's uh, you know what he is. He's arrogant. He's reckless. He's dangerous. Is that what we need as a king? I mean, I, I can't help but imagine, like, if Thor, if this coronation had gone through at the beginning of the film uh, and, and Loki had not, you know, done his stuff with the frost giants sneaking them in and all this sort of stuff, we would have ended up with the exact Thor that we got in the what if, right? This That's that's what he becomes without having gone through this lesson. So it's interesting that this journey that Thor ends up going on in the context of the film is because of Loki and and this, uh, this kind of, uh, you know, sneaking the guards in and kind of like trying to kind of cause a disruption on his coronation day. So it's it's very interesting that Thor wouldn't have changed at all. And they were, his friends were so supportive of that. It's just like they're, they're giving the alcoholic friend the drinks, you know? Well, I think that, you know, one of the things with Thor and Loki seems to be that Thor is everything that Asgardian culture seems to prize. Like he is aggressive and loud and impulsive and warlike and, you know, all of this sort of boorish behavior and starting fights like even though it is actively leading to negative consequences it would never occur to any of his friends to be like that's bad behavior for a king because that is what even if that's not necessarily always how odin behaves if odin is much wiser it is something that is praised in all of their storytelling and that's like thor didn't become this way in a vacuum. Thor was taught to behave this way. And it's behavior that Loki has never been able to model. And that's why Thor is the popular one. And Loki is like the weird one that they don't totally trust, even though Loki makes some valid points. And the other thing that that strikes me about his little speech is I wonder, and like, I don't want an answer to this. I like that it's ambiguous. How much of it does he believe? And how much of it is he 
trying to convince himself of that he did the right thing for the good of Asgard. Like, did he do this to save his home or did he do this to save his brother or did he do this because he resents his brother? And I think it's all three, but how much is the deciding factor? That's what's so interesting about like the character of Loki, because I mean, he obviously brought these three frost giants. We haven't, we don't know it's him yet, but we know uh, he brought these frost giants here to disrupt the coronation. They are, they break into the vault and they're trying to steal the casket. They get caught, they get killed. And we don't know exactly what his intentions were, but we know it was basically to kind of ruin Thor's day is kind of a very, you know, the very one end of the spectrum. At the very least, he wanted to ruin the day, perhaps get the day canceled and pushed back. Maybe he was trying to start a war. Maybe he was trying to kind of, kind of push Thor. I mean, we know at the at the in the banquet hall, he certainly then is pushing Thor to kind of, oh, you should totally you you shouldn't invade. Don't tell father, you know that whole thing. And then Thor's like, yes, we should totally do that. And they go to Jotunheim, but then he's telling the guards. So it's like he clearly has these plans, but he's always trying to counter them so that yes, he's telling a guard to um, to tell Odin so that they don't end up in Jotunheim. Like his, his hope was that they wouldn't actually go there, but that they would get stopped beforehand. But now that they've gone and Thor's been banished, like he's, he still is like constantly spinning his, his web so that he can always be a few steps ahead of everybody. Um, so I, it's, it's very fascinating the way that all of this is developing. And, uh, but I will say the one thing that really also stuck out to me, this is to a point that we've talked about, Matthew, the fact that he also says the guard should have been flogged for taking so long. <laughs> Again, that speaks so much to just like this royal mindset that these people have. I, I think it speaks to what a great scene this is that I now have three totally different directions. I want to take conversations. We'll start with this one. <laughs> and then Jessica, I want to get to the comment you, you talked about, about where is Loki's head. This, I think is the scene where, especially once I really think about it, I have the most sympathy for Loki because I think in part, because we never quite get inside Loki's head. I think it's easy to feel like he is the villain for this entire movie. The more I analyze it, though, and the more I rewatch it, I'm starting to feel like this is not just Thor's origin story. This is Loki's origin story. Because, yeah, on some level, maybe he did. He just wanted to pull a prank because he's always in his brother's shadow. And he probably never thought that his brother was going to get kicked out. But, you know, to me, there's something so telling about the fact that when Loki makes this very reasonable point the friends have learned to so distrust him that they immediately dismiss it and instead go to being suspicious of him. Like, you know, it's weird because they're sort of right, or they will be later. But at that moment, I just have so much sympathy for him. I'm kind of like, yeah, I kind of hear you, dude. Like, you're trying to get people to pay attention to this. Maybe even you did the whole thing to kind of make Thor expose what he really is in a way Odin had to see. And now you tried it, and the friends still don't get it. Like... I don't think he's pure. I think it's definitely like it, it's the whole mix of everything going on. There is a lot of nefariousness. There's a lot of self-interest involved. But I definitely really feel for him as well. Well, at least Volstagg says, you know, he we should be grateful he did save our lives. At least there's that. At this point, Loki, I mean, finding out the truth of his parentage really does push him further in, you know, down a negative road. But to me, like spoilers for later in the movie, but he doesn't really 
kind of plant his feet as a villain, as like someone who has done something truly awful, even though like he did get people killed at this point. But that's sort of just par for the course in Asgard, I think. It's not until the moment that he comes to see Thor on Earth and he's like actively cruel for no reason. That that to me is where he crosses that Rubicon from this character who is who could go either way like that's when he really steps into the end like obviously like as a villain you know he's gone back and forth across that line many times over the rest of the MCU and he's you know a a likable villain and uh, one who can be redeemed Um, but up until then he's he still very much feels like Thor's little brother who yeah basically pulled a prank that got out of hand and decided to see how long he could take it, but doesn't know how he feels about it. I think it's a really good way to put it. And it kind of leads into the, you know, the question you brought up that I wanted us to respond to about, you know, how much is he failing? Like, you know, is he doing this intentionally? Is he being sincere in what he says to his friends? And I don't want the results to prove the answer. Cause you know, sometimes you can try something which doesn't work, but I feel like until this point, we have seen that he is when he's trying to be very good at manipulating people. And the fact that here, if what he's trying to do is get the friends on his side and also sort of drop the bombshell in a way that removes all suspicion from him, he fails spectacularly at that. At that, And and to me, I think he knows it well enough that maybe he just, this is when he just, you know, rolls in a, 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 a crit fail, a one on his manipula- manipulation roll. But I took it to be that 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 is kind of a sign that he's he's not thinking about this in terms of, okay, how do I play chess while they're playing checkers? What do I say to make them? He's just speaking totally from his heart. And that's why it just doesn't work at all. Well, and maybe some of that is the fact that, I mean, he is clearly not in the right headspace right now. He is thrown because of this, you know, very much conflicted focus that he has now about the fact that he's turning blue and he's not reacting to the the cold the same that the others are and so maybe it's just like he's he's kind of slipping he's not at his best at this moment you know yeah there's an edge of desperation to his arguments that feels very real um it feels very authentic and from the heart and whether that's because he is freaking out about turning blue or because he really desperately believes what he's saying or a combination of the two, like it it makes it feel, it doesn't feel like the smooth manipulation from earlier. It doesn't feel like he's playing people. And like you said, if he, if he was, he does a bad job at it. The one thing I wanted to point out also here is because you talk Andy about the line, he says, you know, um, he should be flogged for taking so long to come rescue us. It, It to me was a very, that line is also very telling about the character, especially because it's a reference, I think, to a lot of mythology, because often in the mythology, we find that Loki is the sort of person who, if there's something difficult that has to be done, he would much rather manipulate someone else into doing it than having to do it himself. And, you know, because in some, like, if, if he stuck around and I was one of the Warriors 3, my next question would be, Loki, if you were that convinced this was a bad idea, why did you go? And I think this is really telling. Like, he he didn't want to fight Thor. He just said, you know what, the easier thing is to get us caught instead of trying to confront Thor directly. Yeah, there's an interesting element to that. It, I mean, the way you're describing it makes me uh, think of Tom Sawyer and the White Picket Fences. Like, he's totally that sort of person, right? You know, 
convincing other people, oh, yeah, it, you totally should be the one who handles this. But it is interesting that uh, that he's well, he's he's kind of shifting the blame like he's he he did this thing. And what he's doing here is like it was the right like he's totally like selling it like it was totally the right thing to do. You you should be able to see this like I can't believe that you can't see any of this. And then also the fact that he throws that line in one again, I question the royalty of he should be flogged for taking so long. It also is very much a uh, an aside that he's throwing out there to kind of like, you know, it's almost like he's trying to kind of shift their attention away from it, like just dismissively, like uh, he should be flogged for taking so long. You know, it's one of those those comments that he can just kind of throw out, or anyone could just kind of throw out there that it's meant to kind of like shift their attention away from what he just said to a totally different point, although they don't they don't bite on it at all. Right. The problem is not that Loki went behind their back because that was actually a good thing. The problem is that the minion that he employed to do so didn't do it quickly enough to keep any of them from getting hurt and Thor from suffering egregious consequences. I, I also, uh, Andy, you wrote in their notes uh, a point that I, admit I hadn't thought of, but I'm really glad you brought up, that this does seem to imply that the flogging of palace officials who don't do well at their job is something that Loki expects as a reasonable outcome of the situation, which is not a great statement for worker rights in Asgard. Um, just, right, uh, yeah. you know, it, it looks like paradise, but we've got some labor organizers would be a really good thing maybe in Asgard. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. So then Loki storms out. Of course, we'll see where he's going uh, tomorrow. But then we get the reactions. We start with Sif. You know, she jumps right to being suspicious. And I think she does make a good point. And it, it's interesting because, you know, her first thought is that Loki's always been jealous of Thor. What, what, what's kind of your, your feeling on, on where she's coming from here? Well, there's definitely something there, uh, you know, I, although we've never seen it. This is kind of a very expositional line that she has here, right? She's just she's basically telling us so that we as the audience know, oh, Loki's always been jealous of Thor. I mean, I guess we can kind of, uh, you know, sense that already. But clearly it's it strikes me as something that they've put in here to now let us know that, you know, there is something about the relationship between Loki and Thor that this group of people here, these four people who are Thor's friends, always kind of look at Loki as the the kind of the the jealous, you know, kind of the the worm tongue type of brother, you know. First of all, the thing that strikes me about her delivery is that she seems almost near tears, which is interesting to me. I don't know if that was Jamie Alexander's like intent or if it's just sort of how it's reading to me, but she seems like her voice is almost shaking, um, which you wouldn't think that this would be a thing that would make Sif cry because you wouldn't think that anything makes Sif cry. But I do wonder, like in the context of this whole conversation, you know, we talk about Loki being a good manipulator, but is he a good manipulator or is he good at manipulating Thor? Because I mean, (laughs) that's the thing. Thor has always trusted him. Thor has always listened to him. Thor loves him. But the rapidity with which the Warriors 3 and Sif are like, "Mm, I don't know, makes me wonder if he's ever been good at manipulating them. That's that's an interesting uh, point. I mean, obviously, he did trick Sif at, at some point to cut her hair, so that whole thing happened. But still, it does seem, and it has so far in the film, it has kind of seemed like there's less trust coming from them for Loki. 
And uh, so it definitely is something that they, they play to where um, yeah, it may be it, just the fact that they love Thor so much that they'll do anything that Thor says, even if it is something where Thor has been ma- manipulated by Loki to do. And I think when I get out of the scene, especially agreeing with everything you all just said, but also that we're kind of being reminded that no one is objective here, you know, that we as the audience get to see Thor and get a sense of who he is. And it might sound like Loki is more accurate. And so I do think he has a more accurate picture of his brother than the friends do. But he also like he does kind of wish that he could be Thor. You know, we got that moment early in the movie when the, they were kids, when Loki talked about like maybe he would get to be king. And Odin even sort of talked about it as like one of you will be king as though like maybe even giving the kid a little bit of hope. And so, yeah, I think it's very like, you know. When someone else has the position you want, like if I'm an understudy, I'm probably going to listen to every bad note that the person I'm, you know, has the role that I want hits, you know, and I'm going to hyper focus on it in the same way that the friends are the exact opposite. I think it's neither one of them, I think, has a completely objective picture of Thor. And and I just love the way that plays out in the scene. There's also the possibility that, I mean, it's sort of implied, but Thor and Loki have been educated in ruling and statecraft and like how to be a king because it seems like very weirdly odin was like could be either of you but that wasn't true at all i i wonder if it's that british idea of you need an heir and a spare you know that loki was kind of trained in case something happened i I could buy that thor was a very clumsy baby and they were like (laughs) you better train the backup one too right right Um, exactly but these are things that Loki would know and think about and would probably take to heart much more seriously than Thor did, whereas there's no reason for the Warriors 3 and Sith to care about these things at all. And like I was saying before, like there, you know, we get the impression that everything that Thor is is what Asgardian culture values. And certainly like, oh, Thor's hot-headed and impulsive. Well, so are Fangrel and uh, Volstagg and Sith. So why would they think that that's a bad thing? And when Loki goes, that's bad, and you shouldn't be in charge of a country if you're going to do that, they're not going to have a very positive reaction to that because, again, these are things that they've been taught their whole lives to prize. These are things they've cultivated in themselves, and they've never been asked to think about what makes a good king because they live in a hereditary monarchy, so they don't really have a choice. Well, and also, I mean, you know, there is that moment where she actually pleads to Loki to to go talk to Odin and get him to change his mind, which I find, again, that also speaks to what you're just saying about the fact that, you know, there are these moments where they do acknowledge this. There is this hierarchy here. We can't just go talk to the Allfather, but you can. You're his son. You can go have this conversation with him and, and try to get him to change his mind. And uh, there's kind of that emotional plea that they have there, which I, I think is really interesting. And interestingly, I think that also kind of speaks to this potential setup that they never quite do anything with about Sif being an, an, a love interest for Thor, because she does kind of have that feel here, like when she's pleading with uh, Loki, like I, I feel like there is a little bit of that connection there that we're that they're perhaps implying. I, th- I think it's definitely a thing there. And and then I, you know, I, I've said I am, uh, as a redheaded rotund fellow, I am very much on Team Volstagg for the most part. And I kind of hate that here he's kind of an emotional pinball because, 
You know, at first he's like, oh, Loki, how could you do that? And then 10 seconds later, he's he's the one saying, well, it's probably better that that Loki did that. It, it, you just get the sense of him that he's just kind of like, look, as long as someone puts, you know, some good food and wine in front of me, I'm going to go along with whoever I have to go along with. <laughs> well, yeah, I do like that, you know, n- none of these other people are thinking before the healing room, but he's the one who's like, you know, half a day ago, we were cornered on a cliff surrounded by Jotuns, so. Yeah, he's, he's easy going. This is, you know, he's relaxing by the fire. He's got his wine. Okay, yes, there were problems, but let's look on the bright side. And I do really like for Hogan, you know, we've talked before that we just had learned very little about him up to this point. And here, I feel like in the, in this minute, I really get, as, as well as the minute before, I get a much better sense of Hogan. You know, he's the character who doesn't feel a need to always talk. He will only say something when he has something important to say. And he kind of really drops a bombshell. You know, Sif is the one who's suspicious, but he's the one who makes a connection of, you know, remember, we were, you know, running for our lives. Maybe we're not paying attention. But like Laufey said, there are traitors in the house of Odin and a person using magic could get the giants into Asgard. And I, I, I feel like this really says a lot about Hogan, that he's the one who's able to kind of see all those things together and start to really pull it all together. I mean, I feel like, honestly, it's a huge leap. Like, he's right. Mm. But if you take, if you, if you don't, if we didn't know that, if we're looking at it from his perspective, then the younger prince warns the king that the older prince is about to do something dangerous and get himself killed. Therefore, I am going to believe the enemy king when he says there are traitors here (laughs) and assume that the younger prince is that traitor and has been using magic to destroy us from the inside out. Like, that's that's actually a huge leap. Again, he's right. He's absolutely right. But it doesn't actually really logically follow. It's just that Hogan's, I mean, you know, his full title is Hogan the Grim. So like taking the most pessimistic possible interpretation of events is very in character for him. But I would be like, if I were in that room, I would be very skeptical of it. Yeah. I, I think so, yeah. so much of this winds up coming down to a frustration that we've already talked about that we don't know as an audience how they got from Jotunheim to Asgard. Now, it sounds like they did. And, you know, I kind of want to know, like, is someone like Loki using magic, is that one of only three possible ways it could have happened? Or is that one of 300 possible ways it could have happened? You know, because I think that is a lot of how much is Hogan making a huge leap? Or is he kind of looking at, like, that's actually the only possibility? And... You know, again, we, we've talked before about how this is a movie that was not necessarily made to be analyzed in quite this much detail, but here we are and we're going to do it anyway, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I think it's just why, like, I love the scene, but it's also frustrating because I, I think you're right. I feel like, I feel like it's a disservice to Loki that they jump to these conclusions so quickly, and I wish that it had been more like a little bit of suspicion raised, and then them kind of walking through, and then eventually Hogan kind of pointing out, like, hey, could that be how they got in, or you know, something like that. It's a very frustrating scene because it feels like when I when I hear that, I mean, yeah, it's like the writers needed to kind of, you know, create this suspicion, like nothing about it. I mean, as you were saying, Jessica, it feels like such a huge leap that the only way that they could have gotten there is if the writers had put the words in their mouth. 
you know, and that's it's that whole uh, Watsonian versus Doyleist kind of look at look at why this is in the script. It's because we just needed them to be suspicious, and it ends up frustrating me because I just feel like it 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 just doesn't fit. Like I don't see the puzzle pieces leading to that particular picture, and so I uh, I get very frustrated with it. Um, but you know, I mean, they are right as it does turn out. It just it, you know would it have would it have worked if they weren't suspicious? I guess you know, we'll find out as we kind of continue talking about these various minutes, but like, would it have been fine if, if these friends weren't suspicious at this particular point? Well, and I think it, it comes back to, I know I keep harping on this, but sort of the the way Asgardians expect people to be and the virtues that they prize, I feel like there is this suspicion, like there's almost a, well, it was somebody using magic and who uses magic? Well, the queen for one. So I don't know why this is considered. <laughs> yeah. There is something very, there, there's sort of a bundle of traits that they are distrusting. Like Loki is, um, he is persuasive and he is, um, he is intellectual and he is less warlike. He is less ready to go to fight for no reason. And he uses magic, which does, you know, you can make the argument that that is a feminized trait within Asgard because it is something that the queen does. And there's this whole sort of package of personality traits that Loki has that are in no way, like <laughs> Loki also has personal personality traits that are very bad. Like he manipulates people and kills hundreds and that's all bad. But like a lot of the stuff that they are naturally saying that they seem to be naturally distrusting is not inherently negative. It's just not as guardian. And so I feel like their suspicions land on him, not necessarily because it's logical for them to do so, but because, you know, he's sneaky. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great point. And it really ties into what we saw of him in the battle on Jotunheim just a few minutes ago, where like you'd call him sneaky. The first, the first frost giant that he kills, all the warriors are pulling out these giant weapons, and he's using illusion to get, like trick someone to run off the edge of a cliff, and, which the frost giant was going to do anyway. But that's another story entirely, you know. <laughs> and then even his weapons, like everyone's got a big axe or a big sword or something, and he's just got these like little daggers that he's throwing around. You know, he's definitely not a. He's classed for rogue, and they're all classed for warrior barbarian, and he just does not fit in a way that I I think. They're just doing so many subtle things to bring out. And your question about the the whole thing with the master of magic, like that that I that was my other thing. It's like, well, okay, we know there's Loki and Frigga. Are there that many masters of magic here, or or is he is he completely saying when he says this, a master of magic could have done this? It's Loki or Frigga. Like, is that where he's suddenly has jumped to? Because then it's just the royal family attacking Asgard, which is, uh, you know, a big leap. Whereas if like half of Asgard are masters of magic, then that's a totally different story. Well, especially because we know from Kenneth Branagh's statements, and Annie, you and I talked about this in some of our first episodes, there was a very intentional choice to not make Asgard seem supernatural. They wanted to seem like this is just another race of beings who are much further along with science than we are. And so they can do things that look miraculous to us poor humans, but are to them just science, you know, that, and that there's some Asgardian book of physics and astrophysics that explains the Bifrost in ways that, you know, students have to study and probably take tests on. And then they have magic thrown in. I think I'm just spoiled now because I'm just like, why make a movie when you could make a 10 episode series? You know, you could tell us <laughs> so much more. 
<laughs> well, I think, again, that goes to sort of set Loki aside as like, oh, all the things that Thor does or that Thor interacts with or Thor is familiar with that look like magic are just science. And he can have a really sweet conversation with Jane about how it's science and they're all the same thing. And it's really relatable and warm and charming. And then there's the stuff Loki does, which is actual magic and there's no explanation for it. And therefore it's sinister. And here I love, I don't make it explicit. I don't even know if it's intentional or just the way things lined up, but that dynamic is very true to the, to the mythology, especially in that in the mythology, there are two people who have a sort of like, maybe we don't always have to approach every problem with an axe and with a straight-ahead attack, that maybe we can be sneaky, maybe we can be wise, and it's Loki and it's Odin. And, you know, in this, in this world, Odin's the one who married a, magi- uh, a wizard you know, or a witch or however you want to describe her. Like, he clearly trusts magic enough that he's having the future ruler of Asgard being ruled by that. So well and ho- I, hold on, he uses magic too. He put a he put a he cast a spell on Mjolnir. Don't don't tell me that was science. <laughs> you know, is it or is it just like it was he hacked he hacked Mjolnir. <laughs> he just, just it's a hack. I, I'm not gonna do it, but if I say hey a certain word, I can change the temperature in my in my room right now just by speaking <laughs> to the uh, uh, Google oh, box, okay. like listening to everything. So I don't I know. Maybe this. you can program. You know, maybe I love this. Mjolnir is hackable. Mjolnir is run by Siri. You know, they just didn't get the rights from Amazon or whatever it is. So hey, Mjolnir, play Despacito. <laughs> I love that song so much. Anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, I'm sorry, yeah, I didn't mean so- to interrupt you. I just was like, wait a minute, Odin does use magic, but yeah, go ahead. No, yeah. I- well, but that's the thing is I, I wish there was a little bit more, particularly when they're trying hard to say this is that this isn't all magic. I wish they were a little more clear about what's the line between magic and uh, science, quote unquote. Or is this magic all meant to be like super science? Like, that's the other thing. Like, maybe all of this stuff they're doing is now we're meant to believe it's some sort of uh, science. Like, I, I don't know. It just it, it, it hits a point where I don't know anymore. I just want to see uh, if that's the case. Tony and Bruce's reactions when they find out that Loki was doing science the whole time. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, they're going to want to study like, hey, when Loki shapeshifts, like, what happens to his, you know, like laws of conservation of matter? Like, is he the same amount of matter? Does he gain matter and lose matter? Like, what's happening here? Exactly. Um, I'm probably butchering my physics education, but there you go, uh, liberal arts nerd. <laughs> I think Marvel. I, they pretty much decided to say, you know what? it doesn't matter anymore when they brought Dr. Strange on, because that's all of a sudden that's like, no, no magic really does exist. So it's, it, they, they pretty much said it's okay. We, we now believe in science and magic. Mm-hmm. So I think that's about, well, it's certainly not all I can go so much more, but I think that's a good stopping point for this episode. Do either of you have any other last comments you want to make? I think I said everything I wanted to say for this one. Yeah. Same here. Great. Well, Jessica, for people who want to find more of you, we've talked a bit about Book Riot. We've talked about um, the podcast you've done and the book you've published. Is there any other, uh, anything else you want to kind of bring to people's minds to and their attention of other ways they can follow you? I mean, I am very occasionally on Twitter at Jess underscore Plummer. Um, that's about it. Cool. Well, yeah, definitely check it out. Check out the, the podcast, Flights and Tights, and uh, look for Jessica Plummer on Book Riot. A lot of great stuff. I think I mentioned earlier, but the most recent article that, that I've read that'll probably be a couple months old by the time this goes to air uh, is about the fashion choices of Squirrel Girl. 
uh, a character who I had never heard of before. I'd heard of, mostly from jazz, but didn't know much about, but gained great insight into the fashion choices, and it got a uh, hip-hop song stuck in my head that I was rather angry about, so I want more people to read it and <laughs> get that song stuck in your head, too. So definitely check all that out. Um, just thank you as always so much. Andy, thank you. Thank you to all our fans, and have a great day. Until next time, True Believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. True Story.